Okay. So, this afternoon's practice. This is going to be a very short talk, hopefully not more than five minutes. But as a preamble to the meditation again, this time we'll return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. I'm looking around, I'm seeing, is Rosa here? I don't see. Where's Rosa? There's Rosa. Rosa, is it clear? A bit better. Okay, I'm trying to articulate a bit more clearly. Get the consonants, the consonants crisp. That tends to help. Yeah? What is shamatha good for? One of the things that it's good for is as one cultivates it and eventually achieves shamatha, is that it really temporarily frees you or makes go dormant the cravings for what in Buddhism is called uh, the attractions of the desire realm. In Tibetan, duyun le chakpa, attachment to the bounties, the attractive things of the desire realm. So the five physical senses, wealth, fame, power, things that characterize our ordinary world here that we simply consider to be reality. It's not that one, as one develops shamatha, achieves shamatha, it's not that you no longer can enjoy. You clearly can, but the craving, the attachment's not there. And so you can enjoy it when it happens, when it goes away, no problem, release it, right? Anji. And so, when the craving and attachment is gone, then it's pretty easy to, to see that then a great deal of anger, resentment, frustration, hostility, all of that, that arises within this desire realm, that occurs when either something we want, we don't get, or something we have, is taken away. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Because anger always comes in response to, or in relationship to, a pre-existing type of attachment. No attachment, no anger. There's nothing to be angry about, right? And so in a way then, shamatha is really solving the problem quite effectively for the short term, for the desire realm. And this is why so many accomplished yogis who have achieved shamatha say, say, report from their own experience that through the cultivation and achievement of shamatha, it gives rise to a much greater sense of composure, of equilibrium, of an inner calm. That's not flat. It's not emotionally dead. It's just not oscillating up and down with attachment, anger, attachment, anger. Hmm. And how is this occurring? Because as you're turning off the valve, like a faucet, turning off the valve of craving and attachment out there, what's going to make me happy, turning off the valve of the pursuit of hedonic pleasure, what in the desire realm will make me happy, and you're opening up the valve of your inner resources, the inner serenity, the stillness, relaxation, the clarity, and eventually the bliss of your own awareness. Then you look, when you're experiencing, when the, the valve is open and the water is flowing quite unimpededly from this inner resource, then you look out and say, but why would I go out there to find something less 
than what I already have from inside. So if you own, I'm going to be a carnivore here, if you own the best steak restaurant in the whole city, why would you be looking for a hamburger joint? It doesn't make any sense. You've got a much better meal at home, right? That's a takeoff from, from Paul, Paul Newman, why he didn't cheat on his wife. Why, why go out for a hamburger when you have steak at home? So, shamatha pretty well solves the problem temporarily for the desire realm by tapping into a much deeper sense of well-being. And it's said when you gain access to, this is going on a bit more than five minutes, but not much more, we'll finish, I'll wrap up quickly. It's when your mind ventures into that form realm and the latching onto objects of desire attenuates, subsides. It is said, while your mind is immersed in the form realm, it is said, there's no non-virtue. There is some attachment for the form realm. And there are more subtle mental afflictions, namely, ignorance. But anger isn't there. There's nothing to be angry about. And so the coarser mental afflictions are really subsided. And actual non-virtue, really doing things that are unwholesome, non-virtuous, doesn't occur. So in this meditation we'll go to now, returning to compassion, this will be the fully charged, wisdom-charged compassion. We have different modes of compassion, just as there are different modes of suffering. And there is suffering that is blatant. You see somebody in pain, you're in pain. You see somebody in physical pain, somebody in mental anguish or grief, and you feel with them and you wish for them to be free of suffering. And we can call that a type of episodic, episodic compassion. It's catalyzed by something that takes place. An earthquake in Tibet, a friend who has become seriously ill, and so forth. But then the natural catastrophe slips into history. The person either gets well or doesn't. That particular flux of compassion tapers off, right? So that doesn't take much wisdom, but it does call for empathy and then a yearning, may you be free. A deeper level of compassion calls for deeper insight where one attends to oneself and others. And even when the suffering is not overt, not manifest, blatant, one sees this person is cultivating the causes of misery, perpetuating samsara a life devoted to attachment, oscillating attachment, anger, attachment, anger. It's grounds, for, it's grounds for compassion. But then the deepest type of compassion relates to the deepest type of suffering. And this is going into the raw existential reality of what fundamentally makes us vulnerable to suffering at all. Not only mental, but even physical. And one could say, well, that's easy. Nerve endings. You got nerve endings. You're going to suffer. True enough. If you're an arhat, if you're a liberated being and you break an arm, you fall. You break an arm. Arhats can break arms. It won't feel blissful. That would be a real bad signal from the body. Oh, break an arm. Feels good. You know? Not helpful, right? So the arhat will be aware of the pain in the arm because this is a really important messenger. 
the pain is saying, don't use this arm out of, what do you call it, out of, out of something, out of, out of service, thank you. Out of service, do not use. Limp arm, don't use. Pain, do not use. Okay, got it. Maybe put a splint. Oh, much better. And so the pain is a very important messenger. Don't use it, fix it if you can. The arhat experiences pain. The arhat is not gripped by the pain. The barhat's mind remains in equilibrium, equanimity. And just recognizing pain arising in the body, but the grasping onto my body is not there. And therefore the pain is simply witnessed, but it doesn't grip one. So the way an arhat experiences pain is radically different. It's just a messenger, but it doesn't disturb the mind at all. It's just, ah, oh, pain is arising, but it literally has no owner. It's just a messenger. It's just a messenger. Okay? It would be like a very wealthy person getting a message that one of your very small businesses is going bankrupt. Hmm, that's a shame. Deal with it. Right? It's not cataclysmic. It's not, oh, what a catastrophe. My business is going under. It's one of the minor businesses. So just deal with it. If it collapses, it's okay. If you can fix it, good. Deal with it. But no perturbation. Right? So the body is a small business. Right? So in this meditation, then we'll go into the wisdom aspect. And developing, first of all, this compassion for ourselves, which is getting real, getting real, getting insightful, with respect to wishing to be free of suffering and the causes to suffering. And not just give me an antidote to the symptoms of suffering. Okay? So let's go in and see what we find. your very first expression of love, a first expression of compassion, is for yourself. As you gently let your awareness descend into the body, as you set your body at ease in relaxation and comfort. Begin with an act of kindness for yourself. And let your awareness descend into this non-conceptual realm of experience. There are no thoughts, no concepts, no chit-chat in the silent space of the body. Let your awareness come to rest there and set your body at ease 
in stillness and in a posture of vigilance, even if that posture in the supine posture is largely psychological in nature. Settle your body in its natural state. And settle your inner voice, the mental commentary, in its natural state of effortless silence, by settling your respiration in its natural rhythm, releasing with every outbreath. and set your mind at ease, resting within the field of the body, in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations within the body, especially those pertaining to the breath. And like a snow globe, in which the little flakes of snow gradually come to settle, making the globe transparent, 
as you breathe out, let the obsessive flow of thoughts gently subside, leaving your mind relatively calm and clear. And now as we move into the main body of the practice, the second of the four immeasurables, compassion. Let's draw on our memory, our intelligence and imagination. The more creative modes of awareness and review your own experience at least a few decades and consider once again the times when you have suffered mentally through frustration, disappointment, depression, or maybe it has bubbled over into anger, hostility, even rage. Reflect on those times when you've become really upset. And do so with this question. In each case, without exception, has this type of emotion response been rooted in a strong sense of I am, and I don't want, and I don't like. A strong sense of your own self here, not getting what you want, or getting what you don't want. but stemming from a hardening sense of I. Or in its fullness, I, me, mine. Here is a Buddhist analysis from the Dzogchen perspective, but it's really quite universal in Buddhism. That when we rest in the substrate consciousness, whether in deep sleep, poised for the next dream, or at any other time,
when resting in the substrate consciousness, the explicit sense of I am, and I want, and I don't want, is largely dormant. There's an evenness, a symmetry, a spaciousness, serenity. Then there is a breaking of that symmetry, a polarization, a galvanization, crystallization, a balling up into a sense of I am here. And this is my space, the substrate, and that is other than me. And then out of the substrate, appearances emerge, sensory appearances, mental appearances, dream appearances. And the polarization now becomes instantiated, reified. I am here, and the others are over there. The objects are over there. They're separate from me. And some are pleasant, and some are unpleasant. And I want, and I don't want. And samsara is perpetuated. of suffering, the primary root of being caught in the grip of physical pain, whether in a dream or the waking state, the primary root of all mental pain in the waking and sleeping, in life and in death. the great demon of the reified sense of I am, from which craving and hostility and all other derivative mental afflictions emerge. If you can recognize in your own experience this fundamental root of all the suffering you have ever experienced and will ever experience. You may arouse from the depths of your being the wish, may I be free. Free not of existence, 
free of this delusional, reified sense of I am. Leaving a realistic, more global, spacious, non-reified, non-dualistic sense of our presence in the world that does not give rise to craving or hostility, that is not delusional. To be lucid in the waking state. If you will, with each in-breath, arouse this yearning, may I be free and forever free of this root cause of suffering, mental and physical. May I be free. And imagine the darkness of this ignorance and this delusion with each in-breath being drawn into and dissolving into this limitless source of light at your heart, this pristine domain of primordial consciousness, freedom itself, with each in-breath, dissolve this ignorance and delusion into the radiant purity of your own awareness. And with each in-breath, imagine becoming free. Imagine becoming lucid, awake, within the waking state. Still present in the world, but out without reifying the self, without reifying the polarization of subject an object. Imagine being truly awake, as if in a lucid dream.
as if coming through a dense bank of clouds into the radiant sunlight. Imagine becoming clear, lucid and free in the waking state, as if you were in a dream and had become completely lucid and therefore completely free. Free of suffering, radiantly clear. Now expand the space of your awareness with the awareness that all of us, all sentient beings, wish to be free of suffering. And yet ever so often we look outwards for the source of our distress and try to fix the world rather than attending to and dispelling the fundamental cause that lies within and makes us vulnerable to the sufferings of the world. Expand your awareness to embrace every person in this room each experiencing suffering, like yourself, each wishing to be free, like yourself. And with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May each one here be free, forever free, of the root cause of suffering. With each, with each in-breath, breathe in the darkness of delusion and of ignorance and dispel it in the light of your heart. With each in-breath, imagine each one becoming free, 
and imagine the relief and imagine the joy. of awakening. And now with each in-breath, expand the sphere of your awareness. embracing all sentient beings in this valley, every one of them like ourselves, wishing to be, to be free of pain, free of suffering, and practice like before. each in-breath, continue to expand the field of your awareness in all directions, above and below, and to all the directions to the sides. Let your awareness extend out into space without limit in all directions. And in breathing in the darkness, let there be light. Then release all appearances, all objects, and aspirations.
and for a moment let your awareness rest, illuminating and knowing itself. And let's bring this session to a close. So, Rosa, easier to understand? Yeah? Okay, I'll try. So, we'll be moving on through the other two of the four measurables. But I think before we say goodbye to compassion for a little while, to get total clarity about the distinction between empathy or feeling sorry for someone and compassion. And I think it's a very clear analogy. And that is when you experience, let's say, pain, your knee hurts, you feel it hurts, you recognize that's unpleasant, you're feeling empathy for yourself. That is, you experience the pain. And then you recognize, I don't really like it. Right? That's the nature of pain. We don't like it. I wish it would go away. So now it's not just feeling the pain, it's a wish, an aspiration. If that could go away, I'd like that. What can I do? Ah, ah that worked. That's compassion for yourself, right? You feel it, you desire for it to go away, and then you move, or it's itching. Oh, compassion. The itch went away, right? But you see, each has its step. There's the feeling, getting it. Oh, that's pain. Oh, I don't like it. I want it to go away, and then I can do something about it, and then doing it. So, it's the same. And that is in attending to another person's physical pain, psychological distress, suffering. First of all, is recognizing it, and then experiencing it with them, that it's not just over there. It's not totally separate. It's not unrelated. But feeling with. And feeling with, there is the empathy. And that's where we feel sorry for someone. We feel sympathy for someone. They're unhappy, therefore we feel some unhappiness here. They're in pain, we feel some pain here. But that's not compassion, that's just feeling with. And then there arises the yearning, may you be free. That's compassion, 
And then we see, is there something I can actually do? And if there is, then we do it. And if there's not, well, at least we can practice Tonglen, which is not nothing, right? For the time being. Until we can actually do something, at least we can practice Tonglen. And that's one big step more than nothing. Right? So we never have to feel absolutely disempowered. That there's just nothing at all I can do. If you can practice Tonglen, you can do something. And who knows, maybe it will actually be a benefit. But it will certainly be a benefit here. So, that's compassion. I don't know much about it, but I think I have some conceptual understanding. Hola, so questions or comments about your practice? How's it going? Yes, we'll start with Kathleen and then go to Enrique. There we go. Um, I have a question about um, the, maybe the difference between craving and yearning. Uh, you were suggesting that uh, towards the end of our meditation that we're wishing to be free. We're, we have a yearning to be sure. free of yeah. the dualism and the reification. And even just, the, just looking at our thoughts as being compulsive and obsessive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I feel this, uh, that, that I really want the freedom. Yes. But saying that I want to be free of, when I verbalize that, it feels a whole lot like I'm still craving something. Mm -hmm. I really want something for yeah. me. I want, I want to be free. Mm -hmm. So I feel better. I don't yeah. have these thoughts coming at me. Yeah. Well, then that just seems to be a repetition of the same kind of craving and that that we're, that we're trying to not do. And so I understand. How do we wish for this freedom, mm -hmm. but not in a craving way? Right. Very good. I think one of the poorest translations from Buddhism or slogans from Buddhism is that all suffering arises from desire. I've seen it many times. But there's a term in Pali, Sanskrit, and Tibetan, I mean three corresponding terms, uh, of desire, the word desire in Tibetan is dupa. That's my flu most fluent Buddhist language, dupa. Dupa is desire. It's a very close translation. It's not by nature to desire something. It's but not by nature an expression of craving attachment. It's not by nature a mental affliction. If you see a child that is um, in pain and you want the child to be free, well to say that, well don't desire that because that's craving is obviously psychopathic. To see a child in suffering and not want to do anything about it, no, I am a Buddhist. It's your karma. You know, that's a psychopath. And so there's desire, which can be wholesome. It can be ethically neutral, as in I'm a little bit thirsty. And now I'm not. That was just zero valence desire. It wasn't craving. I mean, if, if somebody took, a, took away the water, I wouldn't be upset, you know. But I wanted some water. I took it. There was desire, you know. It wasn't virtuous. 
And at that moment, I wasn't thinking for the sake of all sentient beings, I'll drink a, a sip of water. It's just neutral. So desire is kind of a big bowl. And in this comes all manner of desire, malevolent desires, neutral desires, magnificently virtuous desires, right? So this raises a crucial point, And again, clarity is really important. Um, well, again, we're like surgeons. We're coming into the mind here and we're trying to excise, take out, diminish, dispel certain elements of the mind. But like a surgeon, we want to remove that which is malignant and not take out the vital organs. And I think sometimes some vital organs may be removed by Buddhists who do, or people following a Buddhist path who don't have such good clarity. And they may, may really idealize the notion that we Buddhists just rest in total equanimity, hmm. unmoved by anything, not wanting anything, not unwanting anything. Don't give a damn about anything. And again, this is psychopathic. I think really that must be a mental disorder, maybe a brain defect. And so not that. So desire, umbrella term. And then there's, I'll just stick with the Tibetan, the Ducha, Ducha Raga, Tanha in Sanskrit, I believe it is. This is defined as mental affliction. And so we can call it, and I generally do, craving hyphen attachment. Craving for that which I don't have yet, attachment which I've gotten to and I want to hold on. There's one word that covers both in Tibetan, Sanskrit, and so forth. This is defined as a mental affliction. So if we use that term, craving, uh, craving attachment, then we are referring to a mental affliction because we're defining it that way. So what's the difference? An enlightened being has clearly a great aspiration, a great yearning to alleviate the suffering of others. Otherwise, the Buddha would never have gotten off his seat in Bodhgaya, walked all the way to Saranat, and begun teaching Dharma. He wasn't doing it because he was bored. Clearly, it was compassion, and compassion is an aspiration. So thank goodness he had that aspiration. When the Buddha addressed his own monks and nuns especially, and admonished them about how to arouse this great passion, I think it's not the bad word, this great passion for freedom, the great disillusionment with samsara, the disillusionment, radical, I see you, now I totally get it, and I am totally totally disillusioned with you utterly and you will never trick me again. Imagine saying that to a person who has been swindling you and swindling you and sweet talking and seeing so nice and honest and was just swindling you all the way through. And finally you see this person was absolutely selfish, manipulative, exploitative, dishonest while appearing to be a really nice friend. And then you tell this person, I am completely disillusioned with you. And I'm not going to have any more business with you. You've swindled me for the last time. One can imagine that. That's what we're saying to craving and attachment. They trick us. They trick us, these mental afflictions. Says, but this will make you happy. This will make you happy. I'll tell that. That's going to make you happy. Happiness is going to come from there. What makes craving, attachment, and mental affliction is that it's rooted in delusion. 
If it's not rooted in delusion, it's not craving or attachment. The Buddha admonished, as I was about to say, admonished his, his students, those who are really devoted to Dharma, to, to liberation, practice as if your hair is on fire. Okay, that's straight from the Buddha. When your hair is on fire, I tried, I've not tried it, because I'm not, I'm not that much of a realist, you know, dousing head with gasoline and just seeing what it feels like. But I think I can imagine, if your hair were actually on fire, would you be interested in dark chocolate? I really like dark chocolate. Don't give me any. This is not a hint, but I like dark chocolate. And if somebody said, Alan, never mind, your hair's on fire. How about a nice piece of Toblerone dark chocolate? Not now. Maybe later. Got water? (laughs) There's going to be only one thing on your mind if your hair's on fire, and that is hair not on fire. That's it. The world becomes really simple. Hair not on fire. Good thing. Toblerone, later. And so likewise, when one really develops the passion, the passionate yearning for liberation, everything else is later. It's not that there are no other goods in the world. It's not that, you know, a liberated being might still like dark chocolate. But everything else is later. And all the other desires are simply adjuncts to the one great desire. Yes, I'll take a sip of water. Yes, I'll go for the meal. Yes, I'll, get a, I'll, I'll go to bed tonight and try to get a good night's sleep. Yes, yes, yes. Why? I want the body to be fit. I want my mind to be fit. Because that's the way I can pursue my great passion. So there's nothing delusional. If we recognize, th- if this is true, and everything hinges on that, if this is just Buddha's doctrine, some type of brainwashing, then different story. But if this is true, The stakes are very high. If this is true, that the root of all suffering is this reified self-grasping, if that's really it, then wishing to be free of that is reality-based. There's nothing delusional about it. Now, the Dalai Lama has commented, if you're going to be selfish, be intelligently selfish. And the yearning, selfish, that is really self-concerned, Hey, I'm here. I'm suffering. What can I do about it? You know. Be okay, be selfish, but be intelligent about it. And that is as you strive to be free of suffering, be skillful, be smart, and recognize what are the true sources of distress, of suffering, and don't get caught up in all the catalysts, the things that may or may not catalyze the root cause. Right? So any reality-based desire without the distortion of delusion is not craving or hostility. The yearning for one's own liberation is not craving or or attachment. It's reality-based. The yearning that the child that's in pain may be free of pain. It's a desire. There's no delusion there. The child is in pain. Can we help? So where does the craving and the attachment come in? And that's where we attend to an object of the mind, some appearance, something arising. We attend to it, we experience it as pleasant, or we have the anticipation of its being pleasant. We either see it already, or we anticipate. If I were to have, if I were to have a $350,000 Porsche, that would make me so happy. 
I've never owned a Porsche, so I don't really know. But gee, maybe it would really make me happy. And if I develop my passion there, then everything else can be, how do you say, secondary to I've got to get my Porsche. And once I get my Porsche, nobody better scratch it or dent it or get in my way. Because now I have the supreme vehicle, the Mahayana of all cars. <laughs> and it's going to take me to happy, happy, happy land. Right? So as soon as the mind gloms onto a person, a possession, a place, a status, an occupation, tangible or intangible, locks on, sees that it is catalyzing pleasure, seems to be a source of pleasure, or the anticipation, if I had it, it would give me pleasure. If only Angelina Jolie would fall in love with me. She's so pretty. And if she fell in love with me, oh, I'd feel really special. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever the fantasy is. That's one of the guy things. You know, oh, if she would fall in love with me, I, she would be, she'd be my, my source of happiness. Well, maybe not. But that's where the delusion comes in. It's locking onto any object, any appearances to the mind. Locking onto it, reifying it, and then seeing, perceiving it as, viewing it as, this is the source of my happiness. The Porsche, the beautiful woman, the status, the job, the place, the children, whatever. And then yearning for it as this object, and then once we get it, latching on and trying to hold on to it fiercely. That's attachment. And that is just a wellspring of suffering. Just a wellspring of suffering. So there are traps here. Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma. The Dharma taught by the Buddha. Is that an object of the mind? What do you think? Buddha Dharma. Is that an object of the mind? What do you think, Malcolm? Buddha Dharma. Is that an object of the mind? You don't think so? Buddha Dharma. Yeah, when we say, what are you studying? Somebody's studying very diligently. What are you studying? I'm studying Buddhism. I just picked up a book by the Dalai Lama. Good stuff. This is a good book. It's about Buddha Dharma. I'm studying it. What's in this book is really good. This is Buddha Dharma. I like it. Can, can Buddha Dharma appear to the mind as an object? Yep. And then somebody else says, Dalai Lama's no good. He's no good. He likes celebrities. He hangs out with Richard Gere and Steven Seagal and, and the women. Goldie Hawn. And who's the other one? He's not good. And Buddha Dharma. Oh, superstition. No, it's not. Anger coming. You know? So Buddha Dharma can be an object. Buddha Dharma can be an object, can arise as an object of the mind. One may cling to that, crave it, be attached to it, and there's a source of all religious war. If you wanted a real simple diagnosis. Attachment, and Malcolm brought it up earlier, attachment to views. Buddha Dharma, my teacher, my church, my tradition, my lineage, my guru, my Dharma center, all objects of the mind therefore can become objects of attachment. 
and therefore the medicine turns into poison. If one actually recognizes the true nature of Buddha Dhamma, let's say it boils down to ethics. Ethics is not an object, it's a way of being. Samadhi is not an object, it's a way of having a mind. Wisdom is not an object, it's insight. It is a way of viewing reality. They're not objects. So when under really understands the nature of Dharma, it doesn't arise as an object to which to then respond with attachment and craving. So that's the really, that's the lowdown. So the passion, so I, I find in dealing with psychologists, I, I actually helped organize a conference at Stanford University several years back, maybe five, six years back, with the Dalai Lama. It was, a very, it was a short conference, it was a very good one. And the theme was on suffering, craving, and choice. Try to deal with three themes in one day. Suffering, craving, and choice. We had some very good speakers. But what I noticed among the psychologists was that when they spoke of craving as being afflictive, as being a problem, as being addictive, they spoke of it in terms of magnitude. And that is, if you like sex pretty much, that's healthy. If you like it too much, then you're a sexual addict, right? If you like money, you enjoy money. That's healthy. If you like it too much, then you're greedy, and that's a problem. So they pretty much saw it, as far as I can tell, as a matter of magnitude. If you have a little bit, modest amount, then you're healthy. And you just have a modest, healthy amount of suffering. And that's normal. Right? But if you have too much, then you have more suffering, and that's not normal. And so the therapist will try to bring you back to normal so that you don't suffer more than the therapist. So the therapist establishes the norm. <laughs> oh, oy vey, oy vey. <laughs> what a world we're living in. So I just thought that was crazy. I thought that's crazy. And that is from the Buddhist perspective. I just find Buddhism here really sane, clear, sharp, and wise. That's my, that's my opinion. But a little tiny bit of craving, as delusional-based craving, is still a mental affliction and a massive yearning to wipe out AIDS from the world, that no one will ever suffer from AIDS again. A passionate yearning to devote one's whole life to dispelling AIDS from the planet. It could be overwhelming, maybe no husband, no children, nothing else, just this is what my life is all about. Tremendous passion. Some doctors have that. That's not a mental affliction. That's a great passion alleviate suffering. Thank you. Right? So it's not a matter of magnitude. It's a matter of is it delusion-based or reality-based. So I think that's an important question. That's why I went on and on and on. Thank you. You're welcome. And I think Enrique. Um, I had one question, but I just want to make a small question regarding this. Craving. Sure. Um, about uh, shamatha, and if it is possible to, to have craving for shamatha and have that make us suffer, mm -hmm. and, um, and just how to detect if it's 
craving good. and, and very good yeah let's stop let's go there and then we can get to your your major question shamatha like buddha like buddha dhamma shamatha can come as an object of the mind one reads about it one gets some conceptual understanding and then one thinks oh i want that right and then one can start setting goals i want to achieve shamatha in eight weeks in eight months in two years so now it's an object it's out there it's something i don't have it's something i want if i had it i'd be really happy seeing shamatha as an object and thinking that is going to be the wellspring of my happiness that will that that will bring me oh bliss luminosity and non-conceptuality that as an object of the mind become an object of attachment for sure right but is but here's where it gets interesting just like with buddha dharma if you point to your book and say ah oh, buddha dharma is in there and that's the best book that's the best book on dharma that's the best lama that's the best tradition and you point to it that's not buddha dharma that's a book it's paper it's ink it's not buddha dharma right so then it's delusional thinking that buddha dharma is inside a book it's not there's ink inside a book there's paper inside a book so if you're a um, we had them in the second shamatha retreat if you're a paper louse a paper louse we learn that there are different types of lice in the second shamatha retreat you were there in the second one yes oh wasn't that an adventure and somebody else too oh yeah nick was there yeah oh yeah wasn't that an adventure we found we found that we had lice in the second retreat we're all living together and we thought oh no we're all going to get lice because somebody had lice and then they spread and we thought we'd be all meditating shamatha on lice it turned out the lice only ate paper they were not blood lice they didn't want human blood they wanted paper so if you're a paper louse you could really be attached to the dharma books because <laughs> the paper's really in there <laughs> right but there's no buddha dharma in a book objectively existent in there there's paper in there so if you really want to be a, be attached to be a paper louse because there's really something there that you can get some you know some pleasure from so buddha dharma if we think it is an object we're deluded because buddha dharma is not an object it's not in a book it's not in sound waves it's not in the brain it's not in the photo of the lama it's not in a, a a stupa it's not in a temple a temple is a temple a stupa is a stupa they're not buddha dharma buddha dharma is not an object right? and likewise shamat is not an object we can turn it into an object and then be attached to it for sure and then we can get very angry when people obstruct us in getting that object shut up quit making so much noise i'm trying to achieve that is acquire shamatha and you're in the way here you're making too much noise and then we can get very angry all right so yeah we can become attached to shamatha as an object and in that attachment it's already delusional what is shamatha a great sense of ease that's not an object a sense of bliss that's not an object luminosity 
non-conception, not an object. It's a quality of awareness itself. It's not an object that we're attending to. It's a way of experience. But now let's go a bit more subtle. I hope these answers are not just going on and on and wasting your time. Hope not. Once you've achieved shamatha, or let alone achieved shamatha, we'll get foretastes, like seeing the trailer of a movie. Trailer, you know? Before the movie comes out, you see the short version, two minutes. We'll get trailer, we'll get a trailer of shamatha. People, long before achieving shamatha, will have a two-minute trailer of bliss arising. Said, oh, I want to see the whole movie. Right? They'll have moments that are extremely clear and lucid. Oh, want to see the movie. And other times the mind is so deliciously silent, really serene. Oh, I want to see the movie. So we get foretaste of what is coming. And it's not an object, it's a way of experiencing. It is a mode of awareness itself. Can we be attached to a type of experience, such as can we be attached to the bliss of shamatha? And I want it, and I don't want to be separated from it. Once you've achieved it, you know it's not something over there. It's something oh, that's flowing from your very awareness itself. But you, I don't want to move. As Dujum Limba, the great 19th century Dzogchen master said, when you achieve shamatha, you'll experience bliss like the warmth of a fire, clarity like the breaking of the dawn, like the sun coming up and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves, and you will dare not emerge from it. You won't want to. You'll be attached to these subjective modes of experience. I like the pleasure. I like the luminosity. I like the serenity, the silence. And one can be attached to, up to that too. And that's the type of attachment that lingers in the form realm. So you're no longer in the desire realm thinking, oh, what's going to make me happy? What's going to make me happy? You've found happy. You've found it. You've opened up the well and you find happy, blissful. I like it and I want to hold on. So sure, that's the big pitfall. That's the big pitfall of practicing and achieving shamatha. And that's why you learn about it before you get seduced by it. And that's why motivation is so crucial that you see shamatha for all of its bliss, its luminosity, non-conceptuality, is an instrument for doing something really meaningful, like cultivating deeper compassion, bodhicitta, vipassana, achieving liberation. Okay? Thank you. So my question is about um, settling the mind in its natural state. Um, you were talking, I think, yesterday that um, when you were really, you, you really relaxed, yes. it would be like uh, fireworks yes, right. dissolving, right. and then another one, Quite. like that. Yep. Um, and that you wouldn't know what would be coming next. That's right. right. Also, yes. So, but um, what I have been experiencing sometimes is um, that there's like a, a real flow of thoughts one after the other. Yes. In, like, I'm not distracted by them. I'm, right. I'm looking at them. And in a sense, I don't know what is coming up. Quite. Because there, there's a lot of movement. Yeah. Like, um, it's, it's not the, the type of thoughts that I have usually. It's, it's more like uh, people are running, people are jumping, people are mm. 
fighting, people are boom, 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 and it's very fast. Yeah. But uh, it's one after the other, one after the other, one, and the, and I can just, I can, I can just like um, kind of release them and go to the space of the mind. Or sure. Something. But it's a choice that I can, that I do. Like I, That's right. I can either like follow them and then they don't stop, mm -hmm. or I can kind of, or I can uh, just decide. Okay, just. Yeah. And they dissolve and. Yeah. So, um, is there that that happens because of maybe because maybe I, it, that happens because of grasping because because I enjoy kind of the movie. You like the story. I like the story. Yeah. So uh, is like that's because mm -hmm. of grasping. So the only way I can kind of break it is. Uh, right, backing up. Backing up. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. Backing up is a form of grasping. Following the thoughts is a form of grasping. Consider your choice of words. I think you chose well. And both of these are expressions of grasping. Okay? And that is, if someone walks out the door and I follow that person, well, that means I made a connection. They go left, I go left. They go right, I go right. I'm following them. So it's like there's a string, and they're pulling me behind. I'm following them. The string is grasping. Right? Now, when clouds appear in the sky, the sky doesn't follow them. They arise in the sky. They move. They dissolve. But the sky doesn't follow them. But the sky doesn't back up and say, I'm tired of clouds and leave the clouds with no space. Right? So both of those are expressions of grasping. One is grasping of attraction. The other is a grasping of unattraction or aversion. Right? So the middle way in this subtle practice is a subtle middle way. It's not a big freeway. It's a rather narrow channel. And that is not following after. Because following after the very fr and I, I like the fact that you chose the words, because it was very clear and accurate. But following after means there's already a connection to and a grasping onto the sequence. I'm following after, which means I'm anticipating and perhaps even looking forward to the next episode. Right? So in the Harry Potter movies, or first the books, I'm following from one book to the next until you get to the whatever many books, seven books or whatever, but you're following the story. From chapter to chapter, you're following it. You're stringing along and you're following, and you're remembering the last one, you're, you're anticipating the next one, it's following. When you're doing this practice with a real scalpel, with real precision, there is no withdrawal. There is no releasing of the thoughts, right? So the very notion of releasing thoughts is grasping. It suggests a preference. I'd like them to be gone. Here, your awareness, when doing this practice correctly, your awareness is like space. Space doesn't let thoughts go, doesn't let clouds go, nor does it follow after the clouds. Space is just space. And there you are. You're just, and this, how it happens is looseness. I'm going to come back to this probably a hundred times, maybe more. But it's just... unmoved, not following after, 
not withdrawing and not releasing. It's letting them be. And that sounds like a verb. I'm letting them be. But it's even less than a verb. It's just being present, luminously and discerningly. It's not even letting be. Because that would suggest I'm doing something to them. Okay, you can stay. It's okay, you can stay. You don't have to go. It's not even that. It's no commentary at all. It's just being present. That's the non-grasping. But for that to happen, the, the mind has to be very loose. Very loose. And it's easy when there's dullness. That is when we're really, really tired, really sleepy. And there's something on television that you really don't like. You don't care. Because you're about to fall asleep anyway. Or sometimes I've watched television with my wife who has the remote. And she likes to channel surf. Go from one channel to another. If I'm really sleepy, I don't mind. Whatever, go for it. Right. But it's not that. It's not the indifference of not paying attention or the indifference of being dull. It's radiantly clear, crystal clear, hovering right in the immediacy of the present moment, but without attachment. Okay? So it's subtle. It's very subtle. But the key is relaxation. Loosen up. Okay. Good.